At the beginning of the course, I told you that the teaching of the Buddha is divided into three parts. Sila Samadhi and Panya, virtue, tranquility, and wisdom insight. I have not addressed virtue or moral conduct at all, but I will. I have only addressed tranquility and wisdom insight. And at this time, I like to explain to you how you can tell the difference. It is essential that if you are and want to be a med meditator, that you know the distinction between the two. Otherwise, you will flounder in meditation. Most people do. And this distinction will help you to keep a straight path, whether the, you are what you would describe as successful or not doesn't matter. It isn't that the only criteria. The criteria is also that one knows what one is doing. Now, obviously, there has to be a, an enormous distinction between tranquility and insight. And there is. But you have to recognize it in your meditation so that you can also at will switch from one to the other. Now, very briefly said, tranquility arises when the mind stops thinking. So that is a particular point in time in the meditation, and I will that I will explain that in detail in a moment. Insight arises out of recognizing one of the three characteristics of the universe. In Pali, Anicca Dukkha Nata, impermanence, Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and substancelessness. Now, I'm not going to talk about the third one right now. It's going to lead to a great deal of theoretical discussion, which is not really worth the time and energy that we might spend on it. But the first two you are experiencing. Now, impermanence I have mentioned in the contemplation on decay, disease, and death, and all that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. Now, if you contemplate that, any one of these or all of them, impermanence is the overriding factor. I have told you that if the mind does not want to become quiet because it is restless, there's too much energy in the mind to look at the impermanence of the breath, of the thought, of the feeling, to recognize that there is nothing that doesn't move within you, but to find it and to experience it. I've told you that one of the facets of insight in the sweeping is the recognition of the impermanence of each sensation, each feeling. All these are geared towards insight. Now, the impermanence aspect of oneself is the greatest help 
to gain insight because it is indisputable. Nobody in their right mind can dispute the fact that we are not permanent. In fact, if we get impermanence as an inner realization, we will see that it is an enormous relief. Just imagine for a moment that you are the owner of a house in which there is a party going on, lots of people. And being the owner of the house, you would prefer, and you're very anxious about it too, that people don't burn holes in the carpet with their cigarettes, that they don't abscond with the silverware, and that they don't break the furniture. So you're having an eagle eye out for all these things so that nothing happens to your home. Now just imagine for a moment you're not the owner of the house, you're the guest. Do you really care? You come, you have a little bit of dinner, you say thank you and you go home again. Now, are we really the owners of everything that we think we own or are we guests here? on this planet, every one of us. This is a guest performance, and it's fairly short-lived. Some people don't stay around at all long. Some people stick around a bit longer, but hardly anybody makes it up to 100. They get written up in the newspaper as they do. So what are we worrying about all the time? What are we so anxious about? looking back upon all the anxieties that only happened maybe not even 20 years ago, last week, yesterday, today. What's there to worry about? It's all moving and flowing. There is nothing that's standing still. So impermanence, the recognition of that through any of the experiential possibilities which I have already mentioned or any others that you might actually experience, brings to the mind not only insight but also a feeling of great relief. You may actually experience a bit of a resistance. Well, if everything is so impermanent, why am I trying so hard? Well, why? In order to see that everything is so impermanent. That's why. That's insight. Any part of that is insight. And dukkha? Well, dukkha is, as I told you already, our very best teacher. It's probably the one that brought us here. Whether you had had any teaching from anybody else, it doesn't really matter. It's the dukkha that gets one here to the pillow. And that's why the Buddha said that the human realm is actually the best one to be enlightened in because we have enough dukkha to want to do something about it. And then, of course, we also have the opposite, enough sukha, enough pleasures, not to become totally depressed. So we have both which help us to do something. So the dukkha that we've had in our lives, and nobody's exempt, it's a universal happening. It's the first and second noble truth. It's the enlightenment statement of the Buddha. We are not singled out. Nobody has it in for us. 
Dukkha is. Period. That's it. Now all that we can see in retrospect as having been the trigger to get us started. So then, what about the present moment? The physical dukkha, which we might experience in, for instance, a sitting position, is again an enormous learning experience. We need to, and I've mentioned it already, but I won't like to repeat it again because it all gets lost in the shuffle somewhere. We need to use it as a factor which brings us greater clarity about ourselves. If we have an unpleasant sensation in the sitting position, our instinctive reaction is to move somehow or other. What does that mean? It means that we don't like dukkha. We want to get away from it. But only when we don't like it and want to get away from it do we suffer. When it's just an unpleasant sensation and nothing else, and we have absolutely no wish that it should be pleasant or neutral rather, and we have absolutely no wish to get away from it, it just is, then there's peace. Now in the meditative uh, posture, when the unpleasant sensation arises, one of the first things to do, and I'm just repeating what I have said already, but I think it's important enough, is to recognize how all this happens. Because this is our usual, continuously repetitive way of being. This is how a human being functions until he or she says, I've had enough, I'm going to stop. Now the way we function is sense contact, feeling, perception, mental formation. What I've just said are the four aspects of mind. The sense contact, in order to make it quite clear, in this instance, is a touch contact. When we're sitting, we're touching something. We're touching the uh, mat, or we're touching the other leg, or the leg touches itself, something, some touch contact. <coughs> the feeling that arises can be one of three kinds, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. That's all the feelings there are. <coughs> if it's a neutral feeling, we don't pay attention. Our mindfulness isn't strong enough, and besides, we're not worried by it. At least it's not unpleasant. So we are constantly concerned with, with pleasant and unpleasant feeling. Now here in this instance, in order to continue on the simile and the explanation of the sitting position, the feeling that arises is unpleasant. So we've got it there. Now the mind says, pain. That's a perception, giving it a name. We can give it any name we wish, but that's probably the most likely to happen. And the mind immediately <coughs> wants to get away from it. And 
will tell most likely a story about it. It will say, I can't sit like that. It's awful. I've got to move. Why don't we just meditate 20 minutes? I think it's silly to do it for 45. <coughs> and then, of course, one has already moved. And having had that kind of reaction, one has had a negativity in the mind. And the meditation will be twice as difficult. Instead, what we need to do is to recognize the process of those four steps of the mind. Sense contact, feeling, naming it, perception is labeling, the labeling, and the reaction. The reaction, whatever it is, of trying to get away from it, of instinctively moving, of blaming the length of time that one's sitting or the fact that one hasn't really practiced long enough or whatever it is. Instead of doing that, recognizing that it's not necessary to keep one's mind on the unpleasant feeling. We have already learned that in the other method, in the sweeping method. Drop it back to the breath. And immediately it's gone. There's nothing there. And doing it again. And then, of course, it clamors for attention again because it has become stronger. And as it has become stronger, we take another look at it and we say, it's not necessary to react. It's only a feeling. And if it were mine, why don't I make it pleasant? Obviously, doesn't belong to me. It's just a feeling. And if we look at it that way, we have seen dukkha and the substancelessness of it. We don't have to grab it and say it's mine. It just is. It's a feeling and it's a perception. But why does it have to be mine? If it were really mine, why aren't we clever enough to make it what we would like it to be. Obviously, we can't. Every person in the universe is beset by pleasant and unpleasant feelings. Nobody wants the unpleasant one, everybody wants the pleasant ones, and yet it doesn't work. Something wrong in the whole makeup? Somebody goofed when they made this particular model? Or is there some mistake in our thinking process? More likely the latter. It's just feeling. So if we can use the unpleasantness, the dukkha, of the physical sensation for that kind of recognition that's inside, it doesn't mean that we're now going to sit with the unpleasantness and disliking it. Because if we do that, we are adding to the negativities in the mind. And that's why I say, when the mind says, all right, that's all very well, very interesting, but... I can't sit like that. It's uh, probably wonderful insight, but then, you know, I'm supposed to be meditating. Then we have to move. Because to sit through a meditation session with the negativity of disliking the painful feeling, <coughs> owning it, holding on to it, and resisting and rejecting it, and then at the end thinking, gee, meditation is really awful, isn't it? Well, what's the use of that? It doesn't help anyone. In fact, 
it will probably be the reason why one doesn't meditate. Some people are very um, strong in their determination and meditate in spite of all that. But it doesn't help. The negativities that we have are already large enough without having to add to them the dislike of the sitting position. But we can use the sitting position for this learning experience. So these are insight steps that we can take. By the same token, what I told you about, the four primary elements, these are insight steps to be taken. You can do it in meditation, you can do it in contemplation. To recognize that there is enmity or hurtfulness within oneself in contemplation. These are insight steps. Everything that opens up a larger perspective is an insight step. Real insight is always connected to impermanence, dukkha, dukkha as a universal truth and not a personal problem, and the substancelessness, the non-personal non-identity facet of all that exists. However, that third one, I've only briefly now touched upon the third one when I said to you, is this feeling really mine? If it were, why isn't it pleasant? My preference would be for pleasant, wouldn't it? So these are insight steps which happen within meditation and out of meditation, in contemplation. They can happen at any time if one directs one's mind towards that. Insight is the goal. Tranquility is the means. We cannot have proper insight without proper tranquility. But on the way, we will gain small insights which will build up into a greater understanding so that eventually the tranquility is also easier to come by. Some people, of course, don't find it that difficult to come by the tranquility. The tranquility aspect is not just watching the breath. I don't know whether anybody's ever thought about the fact that one surely doesn't want to sit the rest of one's life watching one's breath. It's really not interesting enough. Watching the breath, doing loving-kindness meditation, walking meditation, any of these methods are strictly methods. They are the training, they are the practice in order to come to meditation. Meditation starts when the method finishes, when we no longer need the method. I've given you a very brief outline on the inside path, but I want to be a far more explicit on the tranquility path because it is much easier to gain insight when the tranquility has been established. It's almost automatic. <coughs> Whereas when there isn't any tranquility, to gain insight is hard work because everything again and again appears in the old light the way it's always been. I've always reacted to Dukkha that I want to get away from it. I've never wanted to keep it so it's always the same story over and over again, the same buttons being pushed. But once the mind has gone past the threshold where the 
training, the practice stops and the meditation starts, there's an automatic change. The person has an inner life which has expanded and therefore the perspectives change. So insight is far easier to gain if we have already been tranquil. Again, both pathways must be practiced and are being practiced here. Every time you become concentrated on the breath without thinking, you are on the path to tranquility. Every time you recognize impermanence or dukkha, every time you see it in an objective manner, every time you know the momentary aspect of our existence, that is insight. From a practical standpoint, when one has been on the breath long enough, and whatever long enough is, doesn't matter. One's got to be there. The breath changes. And if you have experienced any change in the breath, the change is towards a much finer, more subtle breath. As the mind becomes finer and more subtle, so does the breath. That's why the breath is one of the most preferred meditation subjects, because it is intrinsically connected to the mind. Obviously, as I told you already, there are many other meditation subjects, but this one is very much preferred because of that reason. When the breath becomes fine, it can come to the point where it's hard to find. And at that moment when it's hard to find, it's not useful to look for it. Because it has become so fine for the simple reason that we are on the threshold towards entering the inner mansion. As long as we don't have that entry, we'll never know what is going on in there. We know all the dukkha and all the rejections and all the resistances and all the worries and all the fears and all the dislikes and the hates, but we don't know the beauty. The breath can be compared to a key, which needs to be, the key needs to be stuck into the keyhole. In order to stick it into the keyhole, we have to hold the key in hand long enough and steady enough in order to make it possible. Having done that with the breath, we put it in the keyhole, open the door, and step over the threshold into our inner mansion. Our inner mansion has eight chambers. We, of course, we get into the uh, entrance hall first. And doing that means that we can drop the key since we've opened the door, we can drop the attention on the breath and become aware of the beauty of the entrance hall. And that shows itself in very delightful sensation. Now, it can be one of many. There are many different possibilities of sensation. The most common Most common sensations, tingling, vibration, lightness as opposed to heavy, 
floating, rising, transparency, these are the most common ones. There's one thing they all have in common. They're utterly pleasant. Now, sometimes one experiences it as quite overwhelmingly pleasant, so that tears come to the eyes. Other times it's experienced as just a mild <coughs> pleasantness. Either way, it's called in Pali piti, P-I-T-I. And it is that which gives us the opening for the meditation which leads us from that entry hall along the pathway to all the different elevated states of consciousness which each one brings with it a new perspective. Now that perspective that we get new from each one is something that we probably need to be that needs to be pointed out to us. However, it's so obvious that one can't possibly um, not see it. Not only do we have the entry into our inner being, where because of no thought, no reaction, there's only purity. We also have automatic antidotes for the difficulties that are human nature. Now, the difficulties that are human nature have been described by the Buddha under five headings called the five hindrances. And under these five headings, one could say everything is included that makes life difficult for us. So whatever it is that you personally find most difficult in life, it's included in one of the five. And again, nobody has a monopoly. It's completely universal. It's human nature. But since anyone who wants to be a meditator or already is a meditator obviously has a strong determination to transcend those difficulties, it's important that we name them, know them, recognize them every time they arise. This is of the most importance. Recognize them every time they arise and do something against them, an antidote also in daily life, but without the antidote of the meditation. It's going to be such an uphill task. It won't ever come to fruition. The difficulties are so embedded in our inner being that we need that expansion and new perspective of the meditative path. Now I've already mentioned two of our hindrances which are automatically addressed with meditation. I'll repeat it here because the connection is probably not clear at this time. The initial application to the meditation subject, which means putting your mind on the breath, is the antidote for sloth and torpor in the mind. 
for the negligent mind, for the mind that can't be bothered, for the procrastinating mind, for the mind that's going to do it tomorrow. Only tomorrow never comes, because when it comes, it's always today. The mind that the Buddha said is in prison because of its slothful nature. Every time we put the attention on the meditation subject, no matter what the meditation subject happens to be, but just let's use the breath as the example, we counteract that sloth and torpor. Our antidotes for daily life are learning more about the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha gave 17,500 discourses, which are all translated into English, some better English, some worse. Some were translated a hundred years ago, so the English is a bit outdated, but never mind, they're there. Learning more about the Buddha's teaching and being together with noble friends and having noble conversations. Now, a noble friend is considered to be someone who has the same sort of interest in spiritual development and can therefore have noble conversations with one. In our tradition, the noble friend is called a Kalyana Mitta. Mitta is a friend, Kalyana noble. And the meditation teacher is considered to be the noble friend. Now, obviously, one can't always be at the, um, in the company of that noble friend. But anyone that we can be together with who fosters and supports our practice, who is loving and helpful, who is a person that we can rely on, who will do the difficult things, who will help with difficult things, who has our well-being at heart, is a noble friend. And noble conversations are those that are uplifting, that we can rejoice in, that are helping us to understand life and ourselves better, that will teach us something, whether it is exactly the Dhamma that it teaches or not. The ignoble conversations are the ones that are superficial, that are only concerned with material matters. Obviously, they also have to be talked about, but they do not constitute an antidote for the sloth and torpor in the mind. So these are our daily occupation, but our initial application to the meditation subject, putting the attention on the breath, is the greatest help. And the second one, which we have also already addressed, is our skeptical doubt. Is this really the right path? Is this really the right teacher? Is this really the right meditation? Do I really have to meditate? It's so uncomfortable and it takes so long. Can't I do Tai Chi instead? <laughs> All these questions in the mind they disappear the moment the attention remains on the breath. As soon as there is not only that initial application, but the sustained application, that moment, all that disappears. And the mind says, uh-huh, I can do it. It's possible. 
and that self-confidence takes away the doubt in all the other aspects of it. It's compared to the hitting of the gong and then the sound that carries on. The hitting of the gong is the initial application to the meditation subject and the sound that carries on is the sustained application, what everybody's been trying to do, stay on the breath. And some of you have been quite successful at doing so. Staying on the breath or any of the other meditation subjects, it doesn't matter actually which one, it's a sustained application that counts. And then self-confidence arises, I can do it, and it feels peaceful. Skeptical doubt only completely vanishes with the first path moment. We, I'm not going to discuss that now because it's too many steps ahead. But at least skeptical doubt is diminished to the point where one continues meditation. The Buddha compared skeptical doubt with traveling in the desert without a road map and without any provisions, going around in circles and in the end being overrun by bandits because skeptical doubt one goes around in circles and the bandits of course one's own mind gets one out of the practice the antidote is exactly the same in daily life learning more about the teaching having noble friends and noble conversation and in addition associating with wise and mature people those that see some more profound and deeper truth in life than just what hits the eye. These two are obvious and I've already mentioned them but I want to put them into context again. But the third one, that's the one where we get over the threshold. That's when the sustained application has <coughs> remained long enough so that the sensations arise. The word piti, P-I-T-I, is often translated as bliss, rapture, but it isn't always rapture. It isn't always bliss. It's just pleasant at times. It's a sense of well-being. It's a sense of not trying, but just being there. It's a sense of feeling totally at ease, sitting. It's not being concerned with the sitting posture, it's not being concerned with is the breath there or isn't it there, but just being concerned with the inner feeling. This third step, PT, which can be very blissful, can be actual rapture, but very often just is a very easy posture and a very pleasant and a very pleasant being and a very <coughs> concentrated attitude towards one's inner action because something is happening within. There is all the time something that we can put our attention on. So in this course nobody has said yet that when I asked them what was your attention on, they haven't said, nobody has said yet nothing. But it's often said. There is no such thing as nothing. There is an inner being, an inner life, and it consists of feelings. And that's what we live by. And to get in touch with that <coughs> is the most important thing to do. 
And when we get in touch with that, on the level of meditation, it's all extremely pleasant and pure. As long as it isn't on the level of meditation, it can be very impure and very unpleasant because we dislike what we don't want to have and we want to grab what we want to have. And all of that brings an unpleasant and not satisfying dichotomy into one's inner being. Here, on this level of meditation, none of this is happening. We also translate the word piti with the word interest, because now, finally, it's becoming interesting. And because it's becoming interesting, I want to stick to it. I have met people, unfortunately, students, who have got that far and further and stopped, but they're very few and far between. Most of those that get this far will keep going. Mind you, there are quite a number who haven't had that experience and still keep going. And that's admirable and necessary because everyone can do it. Don't ever think that there are those that are lucky and those that are not. Everybody can do it. It's a matter of letting go, letting go of all the garbage that we constantly think about. What's there to think about? The world goes on without us. Nobody cares whether we are sitting here. Any person that cares might be those nuns that are cooking for us to know how many are there. <laughs> Nobody else has the slightest interest whether we're here or somewhere else. So why are we so interested in everything? It's totally immaterial. So if we can let go, particularly of the past, and then of the future. And if we can let go of that and realize, as far as the past is concerned, whatever happened there, there was a totally different person that it happened to. That person that it happened to or that made it happen no longer exists. It's gone. Looked different, thought different, talked different. Nobody there at all. That person no longer exists. The one that is here now is bringing up all these thoughts of the past. Why? Because one can't let go. One's glued to it as if it were something worthwhile. Dropping it and letting go opens up space for the new. As long as we keep the old in there, where's the room for the new? It's all cluttered up. If we get to the, first, the third step, to this feeling, we have the automatic antidote against ill will. And without that, we won't make it. Nobody likes to have ill will. Everybody's got it. Some have more, some have less. But in order to get rid of it, we've got to do a fair bit of meditating. It's necessary, of course, to do something in daily life. And I've already talked about that. I have already explained the way to deal with unconditional love so that we can overcome our anger and resentment. But if we do not have the support system of our meditation practice, where we have finally found a home for the mind, where we can be totally safe and secure within us, the ill will is going to arise over and over again. 
We can have as many wishes as we like. We can go to bed every night and say, please don't let me have ill will. It won't work. It's always going to come back. But with this, with that first step into these inner chambers, we have the automatic antidote because the mind has finally found its home. It can, when it has become practiced enough, go in there and be at ease, be at, have that well-being, have a very pleasant <coughs> mode of being so that it doesn't have to concern itself with any of these outer conditions which are never quite 100% to our liking. There's always something a little bit amiss, no matter what we look at. Why is that so? Because even the most pleasant thing stops and it's got to be resurrected and that's work we have to expend our time our energy to get it back now if we've got this fine meditation obviously we are at the beginning of the meditative path but we have an enormously helpful foundation and our life changes from that moment on before that it's all head work. We think about it, we agree with it, we, are, we logically say it's correct, it's fine, but within, in here, where it's all happening, nothing has clicked. That moment is when it starts clicking. It has to, because the mind experiences a much greater perspective of itself. It is sometimes people experience when they come to that state as if there is in the mind actually a movement that is also sometimes experienced, but it's not necessary. Um, the mind experiences much greater and wider view. There's something in here which one had an inkling about because we do have peak experiences in life in worldly life where we have a moment of utter and complete fulfillment and satisfaction but it goes and in order to get it back we have to have the same outer trigger which is no longer available <coughs> so it's a moment in time unrepeatable this one has no outer connection the only connection it has is concentration, an inner connection. So while it isn't unconditioned, it certainly is independent. It's independent of the world and independent of other people. It's essential that a meditator gets there. Without that, there is no meditation. Without that, the Buddha never talked about meditation. This is the eighth step on the Noble Eightfold Path, Sama Samadhi. The rest is all trying and very worthwhile, but this is the first time when meditation actually happens. And as we have it happen, we then recognize the fact that the mind is actually a totally different 
entity from what we thought until now. Until then, we think the mind is for thinking. Obviously, it has to do that too. But it's also what we do with it, we react with it. And that's what we thought until then, that that's all it's good for. But it isn't. Because that thinking process and that reacting process has never made anybody happy. It's made some money for some people, but it has certainly has never made anybody happy. And now we see at that time that the mind has a different function. It has the function of experiencing our inner purity. And that experience of that inner purity opens up a new perspective. And it points the way towards total liberation and emancipation. This first step is the most important one because the next ones will happen almost automatically if one is diligent about one's meditation. I'm saying almost because one can never be sure what people do. But to get into the first step is really the opening of the door. Not only is, do we have this antidote against ill will because of the fact that during the time of meditation, we can't probably, possibly be angry at anything or anyone because we're concerned with enormously pleasant sensations, but there is a residual effect. And this residual effect is one of its most important features. As soon as we get our pathway of meditation so established that pathway is part of the practice, and I'll explain that in a moment. So as soon as we have done that, we know for sure that we can get back there. And therefore, whenever something happens in our lives, which isn't exactly the way we want it to happen, and nobody's exempt from that. Somebody says something, somebody does something, somebody looks at us sideways and we thought they should have looked at us straight. Everybody is constantly uh, in danger of having a reaction of negativity. All these are minimized to such an extent that it becomes more and more difficult to be angry about them because one knows that the mind has the ability to go into this inner sanctuary where there is only the pleasant well-being. And knowing that during one's daily activities makes it possible to experience those with a bit of a cushion between oneself and that what is happening. The loss of anger, complete loss, happens only with the past moments, but this is already a great reduction. So we have this residual effect against ill will. And therefore, a person who does this meditation every day will have a kind of an inner feeling of being at ease. Coupled with the practice of loving-kindness, and the successful practice of loving-kindness, which gives that feeling of being at ease about one's own reactions, the two together bring already a state of being which is 
so much enhanced from what we usually have to live with that we might even get the idea, oh, I'm already enlightened. (laughs) But then what is necessary is to check up on one's defilements. That's called reviewing knowledge. So if we've got this far and are able to experience the enormously pleasant sensations, there are several things we need to do. First of all, the first thing we need to do is to stay on them in the meditation. For a period, which I usually say something like 10 minutes, but you don't look on the watch for that, it has to be a solid chunk of time. (coughs) It's not just getting on and getting off. That doesn't do a thing for one. On the contrary, that usually fosters the desire to have it back. And that, of course, is totally detrimental to meditation. But being able to stay on it for a solid period of time, something like 10 minutes. And then, when the concentration lapses or the time of the meditation is up, to realize that that too is impermanent, to see it fade away. And then, to recapitulate the pathway one has taken. What did I do? Did I sit differently? Did I think differently? Did I eat differently? Less or more? Did I sleep beforehand? Or was I awake? Did I have a walk? Or was I sitting still? Did I have the attention on the breath? Or did I have it on loving kindness? What is my pathway to get there? And then the third step is, what did I actually learn from this experience? It may be nothing. It may be something very vital. And then... In the days after that, or in the day later, the reviewing knowledge, which goes on day after day after day, have I changed? And if so, what has changed? And then, what still needs to be done? What are still my difficulties? And then one doesn't get this fabulous idea of enlightenment or anything like that, because one can see quite clearly that there are things that still need to be done, even though this first step makes an enormous difference in one's life, especially if one keeps on meditating, which most people do. If one comes to it, to this sensation, and falls off it again immediately, it's sometimes possible to get back right on it without having to go through the process of watching the breath. If that's not possible, one has to go back to the breath and watch the breath again. Some people get to the sensation through the loving-kindness meditation. (coughs) That's fine. Whichever way. Sometimes the sensation starts out in a very small place. We can enlarge it. And as we enlarge it, it fills us. And as it fills us, that's all we are then. That very wonderful well-being which is an opening of heart and mind. And when it happens for the first time, we also realize that we knew this was there, but we didn't know how to get at it. And that we actually had an inkling that we do carry that within, and that this is actually what we were meditating for and about, but didn't quite know how to make it actually happen. It's not the reason for meditation. 
The reason for meditation is insight, liberation, freedom, emancipation, but it's a means. The pathway to total liberation is one of total renunciation. It's impossible to renounce the so-called pleasures of the flesh if one doesn't have something better to take its place. This is something better to take its place. It's called, in Pali, the first jhana, J-H-A-N-A. And it is the first step of the four fine material, that's the English translation, fine material meditative absorptions. In Pali it's much easier, the rupa jhanas. But we have to stay with the language we know. So it's a fine material meditative absorptions. And they are called fine material because they are connected to the material world. Pleasant sensations are connected to the material world, but they're much finer. We've all had pleasant sensations, but they were all dependent upon outer conditions, outer triggers, and they were usually of a much grosser nature, and they did not arise in the heart, they arose in the flesh. So that's why they're called the fine material absorptions. There are four which are the non-material absorptions. I don't think we're going to come as far in this course to explain them, and they may actually be also a step too far, but I'm just mentioning them. I will explain tomorrow the next step after that one. <coughs> but at this time, I'll give you some time to ask some questions. Yes, and also the part where you recognize the impermanence of this pleasantness as it fades away, that's the inside part, yes. And, but primarily, we have to recognize the fact that only the mind, which has found already a different dimension, is willing to give up this dimension. Nobody else is willing to give it up. What am I trying for if I'm not even here? <laughs> so that's its um, underlying and most important um, facet because there is this different dimension already happening it's not so difficult to give up this one yes I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch on to what you're telling me. Can you say that again? Um, I thought the Buddha said it was two teachers who taught him these practices to absorption. And, and he said that he still didn't feel that he was 
No, he didn't, he didn't have enough insight. He wasn't enlightened. He learned the means, but he didn't, didn't get to the goal. So how did he purify it? How did his dhamma kind of match with the purification? Purification. Every single second of concentration is a second of purification. And if our, in this first instance, if your ill will, if the ill will is even a little bit diminished, you have purification. And the, uh, the purification aspect is not the enlightenment aspect. It's a necessary means. Enlightenment means something else. So the jhanas are the means, the pathway. And when the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree in what today is Bodhgaya, he went into the jhanas from the first to the eighth and back down to the first and then uh, experienced the understanding of the insight which he proclaimed in the Four Noble Truths. So they're the means, they're the pathway. And the purification comes from the fact that each one of the steps that we take on this jhana path eradicates to a great extent some of those habitual responses. It doesn't eradicate it completely until the past moments, but to a great extent. The habitual responses, at least they're seen for what they are mistakes. Is that clear? Sure. Who? Who is they? Oh, his two teachers. Nobody talks about them. They, they were dead when the Buddha became enlightened, so there was nothing much to be said about them. But in the Hindu tradition, then and now, and that was where the Buddha grew up, and it was called the Brahminical uh, tradition then, but it's the same as the Hindu tradition now. And then as now, the... Uh, Jhanas, particularly the higher ones, the seventh and eighth, are of such tremendous um, mind expansion that they were often um, mistaken for enlightenment. And they still are being mistaken for that. <coughs> but the Buddha knew better. So that's what these teachers did. But unfortunately, there's nothing much said about them other than the fact that they were dead by the time he became enlightened. Anything else? Yes. Sorry, more question. It seems from everything I read that enlightenment, if I were, but that it seems that it has to be a cataclysmic happening. After all, he sat under that tree in these positions a very long time. It must be tremendously painful. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'd worry about that now. <laughs> it's two and a half thousand years ago, you know. <laughs> One
one of the things that the Buddha always was concerned with, that people would ask questions which concerned their own practice. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> but is it true that for all who have achieved that, they've gone through oh. <laughs> no, no, but more, much more, really. It must be like almost death. <laughs> Are you trying to figure out what enlightenment is? Don't. Just practice. <laughs> okay, it's death of the ego. That's all. That's all. But I mean, it's too physical. Everything I read seems that he is very physical. What's very physical? The ultimate achievement of enlightenment. No, that's a mistaken view. Enlightenment is in the mind, because at this point in time, everyone thinks, you think, that you're you. Where do you think that? In your mind. That's the unenlightened mind. And the enlightened mind has a totally different feeling about the me and the you. Enlightenment's in the mind. Nobody's ever got enlightened in their legs. <laughs> Yes. I was amazed when I entered the first time some years ago. Yes. By accident. Sure. And I was never found on the back there again. Mm-hmm. And on it's incredibly hard to see the evening. Uh-huh. Um, don't look for the way back, because when you were um, entering into it accidentally, you also did not... Uh, recapitulate on your pathway so don't look for it just sit and meditate can you get concentrated on the breath Um, (laughs) sorry oh once every two weeks well I'm talking about here and now and uh, when you say that you got concentrated twice what do you mean by being concentrated on it More? Aha, right, okay. Okay. And then? You were, you were certainly on the threshold. <laughs> and then? And then the mind said, oh, what do I do now? Or what? Well, there you are. Yeah. Well, don't. You see, what you need to do is forget about that one-time experience completely. Let the past go. There is no room for the present if you have the past in the mind. It's got to go. You're not the same person that you were then. So let that all go. Sit there and watch your breath. And as you're watching the breath and it becomes more and more the breath and less and less the thinking, 
just let it happen. It happens automatically. It's a pathway of every mind. It's a science of mind because it is repeatable and it's available to everyone and it's explainable. And therefore it's a science. Everyone can do it. And all the mystics of all traditions at all times have done just that and nothing else. Now, if you were ever to read St. Teresa de Villa, which is very interesting to read, you will see that she explains it in completely different terminology, but you might even notice that I have taken from her the word mansion and chambers, because that's what she is using. She's got seven. We've got eight. Meister Ecker talks about it in such terms that it's very difficult to find. Every mystic in every tradition no matter what, whether it's Christian or Buddhist or the Hindu tradition, has always done just that. This is what the mind can do and nothing else. But having gone into that and having had that expansion, then it is possible to see the world totally differently and then the enlightenment experience is possible. But not without that complete concentration. So just sit there and do it and don't even think about what is it? How is it? I did it before. That is detrimental when you think about how it was before. And also, you're probably thinking, I'd like to get it again. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's the worst thing you can do. <laughs> That's real dukkha. You see, the first noble truth is that there is dukkha everywhere. And the second one is that it has only one cause, and that's craving, desire. So you're making yourself unnecessary dukkha. So just do it. Just sit there and be attentive. Can you do the loving-kindness meditation well? No, okay. Uh, How about the sweeping? Can you do that well? Better than the breath or the breath better? And then? Oh, I see. (laughs) You were too slow, actually. It was too slow, huh? Trying to actually Took so long. Yeah, it took so long. Okay, right. Well, keep on doing it, alternate between the two, and don't even think of what you'd like to get. Because that's real. That is our real dukkha. That's what we want to get. That's what the whole world is concerned with. That's why everybody has dukkha. All want to get something. Actually, what we really need to do is to get rid of everything, particularly, as I said before, views and opinions. That's the worst thing that we carry around. We need the experience, but not the viewpoints and not the opinions. So drop it. Let the past go. Be here now. Have you found any reason why this particular meditation that you've just mentioned was more concentrated than others. This is another point I'd like to make. I said that if you have the um, this first step of the pleasant sensation at the end to recapitulate how you got there, but any meditation where you were concentrated and you thought, well, this was better than before, recapitulate what you did. You may have had some trigger which helped you. Sometimes it's a way of sitting. Sometimes it's a way of um, starting out. It can be anything. 
find the trigger so that you can do it always. Yes. I found that, um, I don't know if it's a trigger or not, but there comes a point after getting concentrated and getting very fine breath or no breath that concentrating on a sensation of an expansion of breath, like a deepening of breath, kind of can automatically um, become very present, very concentrated, very all of these people, Suka. <coughs> sensations coming up and it's easy to kind of waver in between and then get very into an expanded breath again I can bring it on I can, you know I can will it in a way come on and I don't know if that's too much agitation or too I'm much not kind of I'm not sure what you're telling me <laughs> you said that you were having you were having that the, the sensation that the breath was gone mm -hmm. and then you were expanding the breath then it's totally unnecessary oh I see to bring it back mm. yeah well that's all right but what you need to do in the beginning is if you have if you've come to the point where the breath has become very fine, just to experience the um, pleasant sensation, not play around with the breath then. Just stay with whatever Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, playing around with the breath is like playing around with the key once you've already uh, stuck it in the keyhole and already unlocked the door. The breath is the key. But, of course, if you lose the sensation, then to go back to an expansion of breath and therefore get it back, that's all right but not, not if, you're, if you're not on that pathway to start out with. Just let it happen as it happens. Yes? I'm a little confused. I hear you saying, on one hand, to recapitulate the pathway, but on the other hand, not to want <laughs> that uh, state mm -hmm. to return. <coughs> the pathway is doing something. Wanting is just in the mind, doesn't help you at all. If you want to have buy yourself a new car, that's wonderful, but you want it. But what's your pathway? You've got to go out and earn the money. Okay, go and earn the money. That's your pathway. And then you can go and buy the car. But you're sitting there wanting the car, that's not going to help. That's a big difference. <laughs> okay, anything else? Yes. I am enchanted with the mansion and mm. the chambers, and I would like to hear more about them. Can you <laughs> tell us more? Describe the room. Uh, I will tomorrow describe oh, the second one. <laughs> well, this is sort of, so to say, the one I have described is, so to say, the, um, well, the entrance hall and also the first chamber. And um, one of my books describes them all. Uh, quite uh, in, in quite in detail and uh, Tony has the book so if you want to have it described in detail you can get mm -hmm. Which book? The, When the Iron Eagle Flies Thank you. it's uh, quite well described in there mm -hmm. so um, but I will describe at least the second one tomorrow and uh, also refer to the other hindrances because I have told you about three hindrances, but we've got five. Mm -hmm. So I've only told you so far about the sloth and torpor in the mind, 
the skeptical doubt and the ill will. And I haven't mentioned one thing about ill will, which I should. And that is, the Buddha compared ill will to a bilious disease, the bile coming up. And it's not the one that we're angry at, it's the one who's angry who's got the disease. And um, he, uh, the antidotes in daily life I have already described to you as loving-kindness meditation and our challenge to love people, whoever they are, to learn our un- the unconditional love. So these are the first three hindrances. We've got two more, and they're also being addressed in the meditative absorption, especially in the first one. So I will talk about that tomorrow, which leads us into the second, second chamber. And it is an enchanting pathway. And why shouldn't it be? Should meditation be something that is tedious and hurtful and difficult and uh, sad and um, um, very um, concerned with having dukkha? Why should it be? It should be enchanting because we have to let go constantly of something. So in order to let go and really meditate properly, there has to be something there that we can actually live with. And this is what we can live with. And besides, it's a path that the Buddha himself took. So I think that's the best recommendation we can get. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Imagine that your heart is filled with sunshine. Feel the warmth of it, the brightness, the light. The satisfaction that it brings, the contentment. Let that sun in your heart fill you with joy and embrace you with love. Now let the sun in your heart shine on the person nearest you in this room, bringing with it the love and joy that your heart contains, filling him or her with these feelings as your gift.
And now let the sun from your heart expand so it can shine on everyone here, bringing with it the best that your heart has to offer, warmth, love, peace, joy. Let the sun in your heart shine on your parents, bringing them the warmth, the fulfillment, the joy and the peace that your heart contains. Let the sun in your heart shine on those people who are nearest and dearest to you, giving them the best that your heart has to offer. Brightness, warmth, love. Fill them with those feelings. Embrace them with the sunshine from your heart. Think of your friends. Let the sun from your heart shine on each one of them, filling their hearts with the warmth of sunshine, a feeling of joy, being embraced by the rays of the sun, feeling loved and protected, 
think of other people you know whoever they might be <coughs> let the sun from your heart expand so that the rays can warm the hearts of all these people bringing them joy and love Think of anyone whom you might have difficulties with. The sun shines indiscriminately on everyone. Let the sun from your heart shine on that person with the warmth <coughs> and the joy and the love that the sun entails because it makes everything grow. Open your heart as wide as you can. Let the sun in your heart shine on as many people as you can imagine, bringing the warmth and the care from your heart to them, filling them with joy, surrounding them with love. Put your attention back on yourself. Feel the warmth of the sun in your heart. Feel the joy of sharing and the peacefulness of a loving heart. Feel yourself with that joy. Embrace yourself and surround yourself with peace. feeling safe and protected in that embrace.
May there be sunshine in everyone's heart.